0: This is the period of Lent where the church recognizes and celebrates, reflects over the next 40 days prior to Easter, the death, the passion, the passion and the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it culminates with a great crescendo to Easter morning, with an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus Christ who has conquered death that we shall not face spiritual death, that we shall not face separation from God ever again. But it all started in a garden. I am told that a student Uh, Dostoevsky found his writing journal that he would put his writing ideas in and that he came across a page that said, the story must begin in a garden. John's Gospel starts the story of this terrible weekend this would be Thursday evening. This would be Thursday after the, the Lord's Supper, Thursday after Christ had prayed the, in perhaps the upper room, the high priestly prayer that we looked at last week. It says now that they go outside of Jerusalem and they cross the Kidron Valley, and your, your Bible will have footnotes, or if you've got a Bible that's different from the ESV that I'm reading from this morning, it may say a, a torrent stream or a winter brook or a Kidron brook, but it would be like the Cooper River between us and Clements Ferry if during the dry season if it were to dry up, it would create a great gully, a huge gully, a valley, as it were. And that Kidron Valley was historically significant because in the past, Jeremiah would say that it was the Kidron Valley that was a place of ashes and death. It was a place that they would, during various times of reformation and repentance, they would take the idols that they had been bending the knee to and they would clean house. And where would they take those things? They would take them to Kidron Valley and burn them there. If there was someone that was a pauper or if there were dead animals, they would take them and they would put them in the Kidron Valley. And they would decay and then there would come a time that the winter storms would create a torrent, a stream, and it would wash it all away. He's crossing it in the dry. And he goes to a place that other Gospels say is Gethsemane, which is, means olive press. We believe that because he entered into this garden, that it would be at the base of the Mount of Olives. And at the base of the Mountain Olives, it would have either a wall or a huge shrub enclosure so that you could go into it and it would be, you know, select olive trees there with a stone olive press. And it was a place that was very familiar. It was a place that they often went to. A.W. Pink says that we should not miss the significance that this Passion of Christ in chapter 18 and 19 his arrest his trial his crucifixion and then his resurrection it all began in a garden his arrest began in a garden and his resurrection would, would be completed in another garden but listen to A.W. Pink as he says it's important that it begins in a garden as he attaches this garden significance to the first garden. The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrasts between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parleyed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane... Christ announced, Of them whom thou gavest me I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. This morning, I want I want you to I want you to see, most specifically, one thing. I want you to see Christ in a fresh light. This series is about moving from myth all the way to truth that gives us life. And I want you to move from the myth that Christ is meek and mild and weak. That He was arrested in the garden because He was so powerless. And I want you to come to see that life can be found in a fresh perception of that Jesus Christ is in control. That Jesus Christ is the power in the garden that night. And it is as much Jesus arresting them and arresting their heart and arresting their minds as it is Him being arrested. In chapters 18 and 19, in His arrest and trial and His crucifixion, John puts Christ forward as the one who is sovereignly in control. Things are not out of control happening to him. You'll read again and again, as it is written, or that the scriptures might be fulfilled, or that I might serve my Father. Christ is in complete control in both of these venues. And to be so, he is... The man. He is, you're going to see this morning, you're going to see that in control, he actually reveals himself as the mighty one, as God in the flesh. He actually fights. This one fights for his people. And he need not a blade to do so. It's by the power of His Word. It's by the power of His glory. It's by the power of who He is that men will fall down before Him. When He is revealed to them, they cannot but fall. And when it comes to protecting His own, He does not hesitate to reveal Himself to them. It's notable what John leaves out John, unlike the other three gospel writers, he leaves out two things. He doesn't include the prayer of agony where Jesus prays so intensely for the cup to be removed if God but would will it, that he sweats, as it were. He, he cries blood. John leaves that out. And secondly, he leaves out Judas betraying Christ with a kiss. As if Christ were unaware. As if it's more of a subtle thing. Oh, Judas and a kiss and then he's betrayed. Why does he do so? Because throughout the Gospel of John, John wants us to see that there never was such a man as Christ. Christ who is a fist of of steel and a glove of velvet. That he is one that, yes, he did pray, but at this point he has resolved that he will drink that cup and nothing, nothing will come in between him and drinking that cup. But all the while, protecting his followers. Because he is the good shepherd of John 10, who has determined that he will lose none of his sheep. None will he lose. And he will do so by this sheep or shepherd going out to meet the wolf, willing to lay down his own life to protect the sheep. And John wants you to see that shepherd in action. And he doesn't want anything to distract from that. So, without further ado, let me get into the three points that I want you to see as we move down the latter half of this message. And there's three things that I want you to see that can be captured in three words. Betrayal, control while being betrayed and arrested, and then I want you to see the result of protection. I want you to see Christ betrayed, and yet as he's being betrayed, in a very familiar place by a very familiar face, that he's in control, and very clearly in control. And then number three, the result of that is the protection of his people. Here we see that it says that in verse 2 that Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. Now it's important to know that Jesus Christ He's been telling his disciples, we must go into Jerusalem and it's going to be this next week in these coming days that I'm going to be betrayed. One of you is going to betray me, but I'm not going into hiding. This is my father's plan and this is my heart and my will for the very ransom and rescue of men and women. This is the great love story. My father loves men and women, and I have come to rescue them and to capture them back into relationship with him. And so it's a part of the plan. Jesus didn't just say, wow, we need to get out of Dodge. Let's go to the garden. That would be the last place that he would want to go to avoid conflict. So when Judas knew the place, Jesus knew that Judas knew the place. And we perhaps can hear Judas speaking to the chief priest when he betrayed Christ. Because you see, Passover, this is Thursday night, Passover is the next day on Friday. And they would want to avoid bloodshed. They would want to avoid a trial on Passover as they're setting themselves apart to be ritually clean. But Judas would go to them and say probably something like this. Look. Now's your opportunity because you know the power that this man has in a mob. People adore him, people are changed by his words. He has healed so many people that there's hardly a family that has not either been miraculously fed by him or is the beneficiary of an eyewitness miracle or the beneficiary of the miracle themselves. And the word I mean, a mob will defend him, but now at night, in the dark, with just his disciples. He's been talking about his death, so I know where they're going to go. So the chief priest enlists the temple guard, which would be like religious police. And we're toying with the idea of Two Rivers, about having religious police. But not only that, he would have gone to a representative of a Roman cohort, which is a battalion of Roman soldiers. It could be up to 600 men. Now, we don't believe that there were 600 that went along, but we suspect that there were somewhere between 100 and 200 Roman soldiers that would have joined themselves with these Jewish leaders and the Jewish police. So in other words, this group that is going out following Judas are Romans. They're pagans as far as the Jews are concerned. They're Gentiles. They have joined themselves with the Jews who are known as the people of God's Word. The people who hold the Bible in high regard and say, This guides our life. And they've aligned themselves also with Judas, who was one of the intimate band of disciples. He would be a Christ follower, like a Christian today. Side road, we can no longer say, we would be wrong to say, that it was the Jews who, it was simply the Jews who arrested him and had him crucified. We have a mix of people. We have have Roman pagans and Gentiles. We have Jewish devout believers. And we have those that are Christ followers. Dare I say, we too were in that band. Oh, we didn't carry torches. We didn't carry swords. We didn't carry weaponry. But we need to search our heart. There are ways that we, too, betray Christ. There are ways, too, that we seek to arrest Christ. Let me tell you a way that I do it. The way I do it is I create a God of my imagining who permits me to do certain things that I want. I, I, get, a, I get a God of my own worship and my own, I kind of create my own little religion and say, I know with this God, this is really not that bad. Or I know that this God can excuse this because of all that I've done for him over here. He can excuse this and give me a little liberty. And what I've begun to do is I've begun to take God Almighty. I've begun to take Jesus the Christ and I've begun to bind him. I've begun to tie him down. and I've begun to to kind of capture him and arrest him so that I can lead him around wherever I want him to go. But Christ would not be so easily arrested. It is not these men who arrest Christ as much as he arrests them. You know, the betrayal, if you've ever been betrayed, it's devastating think in your mind and you probably won't have to think very hard of a of a time that you were betrayed and as you're thinking is it a familiar face and maybe is it a familiar place like the workplace where you were stabbed in the back by someone that you shared some ideas with maybe it was the dorm or maybe it was the the classroom well you thought you were really close to this person and you shared some things pretty intimately with them and now to your shame and embarrassment they've gossiped about you only that they could be with you know they could be raised up in the eyes of others by putting you down. Maybe you've been betrayed, your love has been betrayed in a love relationship, marriage, child raising, a child has betrayed you. Turns over. Do you remember the movie Braveheart, where William Wallace was betrayed? There was a great battle at Falkirk, and they, they they were winning, they were winning, and then their own their own tribal leaders began to peel off, and instead of going in with their horses in a flanking movement, they peeled off. William Wallace, he races, he sees the king leave the field with some of his knights, and he races after them. Races after them. And there's one that turns to, to fight William Wallace. And as it turns out, as William Wallace overcomes him and he pulls off his helmet, he finds out that it's the Bruce. No relation to Trey Bruce, noble. But it's the Bruce. And William Wallace doesn't cut his throat. But in that act of betrayal where their own leader is on the other side and has, has thwarted them, he just collapses. It's over. There's no more fight. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows the betrayal there. He knows how we even betray God and not simply one another. And he knowing those things, he steps forward. He doesn't pull back. He doesn't panic. He doesn't collapse. I'm undone. He says, I understand this. He engages. He steps forward in control. How can you face betrayal? How can you you be strong in the face of betrayal? And I submit to you that Christ was able to control and be in control and to be confident in the face of betrayal for two things. Two reasons. Number one, he knew his name and a name was your identity. Notice what he says in verse four. Knowing all that would happen to him, he's not taken by surprise, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said to them, I am. Now you say, Well, whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute, Phil, my Bible says, I am He. Well, that's uh, an English nicety, as it were, a smoothing it out. But this is another one of those, a go, a me statement where he says, I am. Where he takes the name of Yahweh God given to Moses in the desert. He takes the name of God and he says, I am. I know my identity. I know who I am. I am God. I am God's. I am God's own. And God is mine. And I would submit to you that in the face of betrayal, or hurt, we need to go first and say, "Who am I? Who am I? Am I am I Phil Stogner?" Because you see, many times people betray us with quite a bit of truth. There's always a seed of truth in it, which is sometimes it's you know it's wise to listen, but not be undone. And I can say. Times that I've been betrayed that, yes, I have to own some things. But, oh, the wrapping is awful. And to get through that, I need to remember who I am. And my identity is not simply Phil Stogner. My identity is Christ's child, God's own, God's son. I once faced a, a gentleman who was threatening a ministry that I was a part of, he was bringing a larger group of people against that ministry. And it was because of, a, of of something that we did in that ministry statewide. But him coming from another state, they disagreed with that ministry. It was nothing illegitimate at all, but but I felt stabbed in the back because we had shared so much with him and given him, as it were, so much to try to hang us with. And so... It had to go to mediation. And we had to go to this meeting, and I was angry. And, there was, and I thought, I can't go in there angry. I can't go in there to, to fight him. I can't, I can't do that. How can I go in controlled, balanced? I wrote on my hand so that I could constantly look at my finger where I'd written the note, Jesus Christ is my righteousness. I don't have to be right in myself because Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my cover. Christ, I am in Christ. And that got me through that meeting. Can you say in the face of attack or betrayal, yes, it hurts, but it won't kill me because I know who I am in Christ. And the second thing that, that Christ does can be captured in verse 6, which is, If you're like me, that's the verse that stands out in this text. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? It says that he comes out. Imagine the disciples. Maybe they've got a fire going. They're going to spend some time there, cool evening. Christ has already gone out. In fact, in my mind, I see Christ coming as the disciples are over here. They haven't joined him in his agonizing prayer to the Father. And they're over here, and they're kind of warming themselves by a fire. They're huddled together. And then the the troops, this this mob comes up to arrest Christ. Imagine seeing this by satellite. But you see all these torches coming out of Jerusalem. These torches are coming. just this huge number of people. And because it was Passover, it would be a full moon. The full moon is shining over here. And you see Christ praying to the Father. Did you notice in, in verse 1 where it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, He's praying. But to, Jesus sees prayer as speaking to the Father. So he's, he's there and the moon is shining on him and here comes all these torches. And then it kind of runs into these disciples and where is he? And, We're looking for Jesus. Now, where is he? We've come for one. Jesus and Nazareth. And Jesus comes forward now. Moments away from speaking to the Father. Knowing who he is. He's God's son. He's God in the flesh. Moments from that affirmation that you get in prayer. He can now step into it and said, "I am He." And they step back and don't trip, but they fall down. We believe that this is no miracle. In other words, Christ could have called 10,000 angels. Christ could have done something very dramatic. fall down) He could have gone, rise up into the trees. We don't believe that it's a miracle where he actually made something happen so directly. What we believe is that they saw something in Christ following him say, I am. He said it and nobody ever spoke like Christ. And when he said, I am. This is my identity. That they saw the glory of God in the flesh. It's as if there was a moment of transfiguration, but they saw and perceived that it was God, and they could not help but fall down. Very quickly, very, very quickly, will you go with me on a brief word study of that word? The word is Piptoe. And I, I can't give you all of the occurrences, but Matthew 2, verse 11. In Matthew's gospel, the first time the word is used is when the wise men come upon Mother Mary and the baby Jesus, and they perceive that it is God incarnate in the flesh, and what do they do? Wise men, magi, fall down. Matthew 4 Verse 9, Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and he said, if you will just fall down and worship me, what he's saying is, if you will recognize me and my glory, then we'll get along very nicely. Matthew 26, verse 39, is where we see Christ falling down before the Father. Mark 9, verse 20, where we see a possessed boy that it said that the, the, the demons would often cause him to fall down. Acts 5, verse 10, where Sapphira is told by Peter, the men that carried your husband out are at the door to carry you out, and she falls down. It's to fall down as insignificant in the face of glory. It's to fall down as unto dying in the face of all life. I... Can I give you... I would give you one illustration because I want to apply this. I believe that we can control situations such that others will fall down or certainly fall back and take a step back. If we can carry ourselves, and I'm talking to Christians now, with the image of God and the glory of God that He has put in these jars of clay. If you'll realize how God sees you, if you will walk in that. I mean, here is a man who is innocent facing his accusers. And an innocent man can always stand strong in the face of his accusers. Here's a man who is confident in his holiness that he can stand forward to those that are accusing him of scandal and crime. And when we can see ourselves as God sees us, God glorifies us by seeing us through Jesus Christ, then people Began to reckon with us, as a force to be reckoned with. One quick example. I was in the mountains of North Carolina, and it's important to note that I pastored two churches there. And they met at different times, so that just like our Sunday school here, I would be preaching at one church, and then I would get in uh, my Jeep and drive 10 miles over the mountain to another church, and the other church would have their Sunday school then, and then these guys... Uh, the elder would be singing hymns until I came through the back door. And so they hoped that the snow was not too much on the road, uh, you know, that he, he would just have to keep leading them. But then I would come in and I would preach there. Well, we had a carn artist come through the area with his little boy, and they started to hit the churches. And what they would do is they would go in and they would ask for money to bury their their deceased mother and wife who was at the morgue and they didn't have the money to pay them for a proper funeral and uh, the cemetery plot and all this kind of stuff. And they just break people's heart. Well, I was preaching at one church when he was conning one of my churches. And we didn't initially know that it was a con job. And they were very generous. And so then I come and I preach... Well, he went to the other church. And he did the same thing, except a little different story this time. And then in the course of the week, I found out that both my churches had enriched him financially. And then I got word from other pastors saying, Hey, by the way, did you we started comparing notes? And we realized it was a scam. So I'm driving through... I'm, I'm making some pastoral visits, and I'm driving my Jeep, and I see the guy walking with his son. Now, I had a ball cap. I had aviator sunglasses. Had a, what I call a farm jacket. Put those things on, pulled over. I said, hey, you guys walking? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're walking. I said, where do you want to go? I'll, I'll take you wherever you want to go. And so, well, we'd like to go with. There's a church meeting that we're trying to get to. Oh, come on in. Jump in. And so we started talking, and I started driving further and further and further and further into the mountains. I mean, dirt roads turned into logging roads. Just a few spotty houses. Now, I had met him on one occasion. And that occasion was prior to hitting my two churches. I'd been out mowing the lawn, and he had come by. And he had given me a different story. And I'd helped him. And so I didn't know if he would recognize me or not. And he, At that time, when I helped him, I came to identify myself as a pastor. We drove so far out that he began to get nervous. He says, where, where are we? And I stopped the Jeep, and I said, get out. And I took off my hat and my glasses. You're not going to hurt us, are you? You're not going to hurt us, are you? You're not going to hurt us, are you? And it's like, no. But you're going to walk. And I hope you were paying attention. It's going to be a long walk. And by the way, I wouldn't go knocking on any of these doors because they're probably people that you've scammed. These are church-going folks. I I probably wouldn't knock on any doors. And I was mad. Shut the door. Him and his boy, I left them there. I got about three miles down the road coming close to the blacktop and I said, ah, oh God, I hate this. I had to turn around go back. So I go back. It was all I could do to get them to get back into the car. What's my point? My point is, is that they were doing okay until they saw that I was a fierce pastor. They were doing okay until I took my hat off and took the glasses off and took the coat off. And then he said, this is a pastor that we've been scamming. This is a pastor. And I told him the story of the churches. And the more I told them of how you've been hurting God's people, you've been taking God's money, they became more and more fearful. And I believe that in a moment that what they saw was they saw Jesus Christ. And when he said, I am, that not only the Jewish leaders, but the Romans, they knew the buzz. They were in Jerusalem to guard against mob attacks and everything. And it's Passover, and they're very vigilant. They knew, and they all it was almost it's just a laser in a micro-moment that they could look and they perceive, He really is God, and we really are wrong. And they fall down. And notice Jesus Christ here protects his people and he draws it out initially by asking them twice in verse 4 he asks it and in verse 7 he asks it whom do you seek whom do you seek and he it's as if John throughout his gospel he'll, he'll nurture that question to say won't you begin to see that he is life He is light, and he is the only light, and the only light to follow. He's the one that you've always been looking for. Seek him, and you're seeking other things to fulfill you. They will fall, and they will fail you. It's a a question that is searching. Whom do you seek? Who do you really seek? And they tell them, well, whom we really are looking for is Jesus of Nazareth." And he doesn't plead, and he doesn't beg. Well, then let these guys go. I mean, if you're just looking for me, then let these guys go. He controls. He says, ah, well, then I am he. Dismiss these guys. You know, I know, uh, I don't know all your backgrounds. If you're a member of Two Rivers, you do do a profile, but we don't have a blank there if you've ever been convicted of a felony or if you've ever been arrested. But... If you've ever been arrested, or if you've ever known anybody that's been arrested, or if you've ever watched uh, the detective shows to see arrest, you realize one thing. The person that's being arrested has no control. Jesus has control. He steps forward. He's in control. And he uses that control to protect his people. He doesn't use it to violently slay his oppressors. He uses it to protect his people. And he says, dismiss them. And they are dismissed. None of them was taken in. John leaves out the part of where Peter, after cutting off the ear, that Jesus touched Malchus and healed his ear. But it's assuming that that happened because none of them were arrested, only Jesus. Jesus. And it's kind of funny. It's almost like uh, a keystone cop here. It's almost like the, the, the Lilliputins uh, arresting Gulliver because they come out with such a tremendous mob, mob with weapons. And the only weapon that Christ needs are his words and who he is. And they fall back. The only weapon that he needs is his word and his directing of affairs. And they dismiss the rest and they take him. The only weapon that he needs is to consume the cup. The only weapon he needs is his life in exchange for theirs. And we see that. We've got a a fresh opportunity this morning to drink from a cup. We're told in Psalm 75... Verse 8. That in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That cup, the imagery of that cup is in Christ's hand during the time of this arrest. And Peter, like a religious fanatic, will use violence. And Christ says, no, put away that blade. Because this is what will win. This is what is going to be done. The very foaming cup of God's wrath is before me, and I have resolved with all strength and love to drink from it. Notice he doesn't say that this cup is God's cup. He says it's a cup from the Father. In other words, there is the wrath of God that is directed against just injustice. And I want that. I just don't want to be the beneficiary of his wrath. I want a God who is strong for me and who is strong for justice. And he says, but it's a cup of a father, my father. And so I can take of that cup strength and in love. I can take of this cup and satisfy God's wrath that you might know him as a father. That that is why I'm being arrested. I'm not arrested because I'm weak. I'm being arrested that I might demonstrate my fight and my protection on your behalf, protecting you from the wrath that you justly deserve by drinking it down such that a drop is not left. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Oh, we don't drink this morning the cup of God's wrath. There's nothing left. What we drink now is a cup extended to us from the Father. It's a cup of His love because His Son drank the dark cup of judgment. We drink the festive cup of His wine to celebrate with all joy our union with Him that was accomplished by Christ who fights for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would take this cup and take this bread and that you would set it apart for your holy purposes and that as we would partake of this table that we would realize that this is not the cup that Christ drank. That we raise the cup to celebrate him drinking that cup such that no wrath was left. Father, thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for not betraying us who have betrayed you. Thank you for arresting our hearts and our minds to see your Son, Jesus. And we would now receive him again through this table as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.